Hello and welcome to Revisiting the Oscars, the podcast that's all about film history and specifically the films that were nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars over the last 50 years. We are into the 1980s for the first time with this episode 6 and we're going to be covering 1988, which is going to be an interesting year given myself and Bingham were both born that year and there's a lot of good films for us to discuss today. It's also the year that America had an election which is particularly topical as we are recording on Tuesday the 3rd of November which of course is election day in America, a very heated election so hopefully for our American listeners you get the outcome that you're looking for. Republican winner in 88 as well so could that be an omen? We'll find out by the time that this is posted, <laughs> won't we? Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so before we start as always welcome my two co-hosts, we've got Scott Bingham live from Leeds. You alright? How are we doing? Not too bad, thank you. And we have live from Dublin, Richard Mason. Hello to you. So you picked this year, Mason. There's quite a lot of good films this year that weren't actually nominated for Best Picture, so when we go through the top ten, there'll be quite a few that I'm sure will raise some talking points. But before we do that, it's of course Bingham's Blast for the Past Time. Come closer. Come closer. So close your eyes and visualise this. You're sitting in your Ford Escort on the M6 following a cure cars set for Blackburn. You open the glove box and reach in and rummage past your paperback copy of the recently released Roald Dahl's Matilda and pull out a small, bloody, furry, brown fruit, which has been exported to the UK, otherwise known as the kiwi. Revitalised from this citrusy delight, you put your foot in the pedal to reach the destination, whilst ignoring the pain on your left arse cheek from your recently acquired tattoo of popular cartoon character Count Ducula, which you got for a bet with your mates. You hit the spot and park up with a pocket full of glow sticks and Mitsubishis, and head for the entrance to a disused warehouse. And just as you enter, a big tune kicks in. There we go. Transported back to 1988. Are you you telling me that before 1988, nobody in the UK had ever had a kiwi fruit? Well, I don't know if no one ever. I'm sure uh, some sort of pirate back in the... Uh, people had, had the money to travel to foreign destinations with a kiwi through it. But yeah, they, they only started to be exported to the UK in bulk in 1988. I can't believe I was born in the pre-kiwi fruit era. I'm more surprised there that Matilda was only released as a novel in 1988. Roald Dahl died in, like, what, 1990 or something? It was prolific, uh, Roald. I was going to say, uh, kiwi fruit, how do you eat it? Chop it in half with a spoon. Teaspoon, yep. Yeah, teaspoon. I I know someone who eats it all. Oh, not the skin. (laughs) The skin as well. Oh, that's vile. (laughs) That's vile. You mentioned a Ford Escort as well. I remember my, I think it was my fifth birthday, went to an Italian in Wigan. So this is not too far after 1988. And we had a Ford Escort, which was stolen from outside the Italian restaurant and ruined my birthday. Why did you steal the car? (laughs) I wasn't a five-year-old car thief. (laughs) <laughs> Some scallywags in uh, Wigan took it upon themselves to nick my dad's Ford Escort XR3i. 
We had a Ford Escort as well. That was one of the cars that I remember growing up. My dad was very much into functional cars as opposed to fancy cars. Mondeos and Escorts. It's a bit of a boy racer. (laughs) So yeah, before we go into the five films that we'll be discussing today, there's the top ten at the American box office as we tend to run through. Now usually we skip straight to the top five, but there's a couple between six and ten that are worth drawing a little bit of attention to. The film at 10th in the list is a bit of a a Christmas classic, although debate still rages over whether this is a Christmas film or not. But as of course, Die Hard was nominated for a couple of Oscars for special effects. Fans of of the Die Hard series? I'm very much in the Die Hard with a Vengeance era. I feel like I watched that when I was a teenager loads of times. I think that's the best one for me. I'm also in the It's Not a Christmas Film camp. It's set at Christmas, it's not a Christmas film. Yeah, it's not a Christmas film, no chance. Then number nine is Tom Hanks' first Oscar nomination was for this film, which was big. Bit of a kid's classic. It is. Excellent scene with the piano. Although a bit creepy in that he does have sex with her, doesn't he, when he's officially 13. Yeah, and she knows that he is 13 as well. Yeah. So it's pretty odd. Eight is Cocktail. Seven was A Fish Called Wanda. Six was Ramble Free. Any of those films ring a bell or any thoughts on them? No. Your A Fish Called Wanda was, was said in a very Scottish accent there. Uh, well, yeah, that's that quite a good film, to be fair. It's a British kind of comedy. Uh, John Cleese, Michael Palin, I think. It's one of the Monty Python fellas. Yeah, it is. yeah I think he's in it. Yeah, this was uh, actually nominated for Best Director at the huh. Oscars. Didn't get a nomination for Best Picture, but the director was nominated. A couple of acting nominations as well. And then into the top five, and we have Twins at five, one of the... The classic Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito collaborations. Not quite as good as Junior for my money, but fun nonetheless. Yeah, no. yeah. You're not a comedy fan though, Mason, are you? No, this is a comedy heavy top ten as well, I would say. To actually argue uh, that the five films that we're going to talk about, there's two or three of them that you could argue are, are comedies, which is more than you would usually get in the Oscar pool. Yeah, good point. I don't mind a film that's got funny bits in it, but films that are technically class themselves as comedies are too triad for me. Well then, the next ones in the list will not be up your street then. So number four, Crocodile Dundee 2. Nah. <laughs> I don't know if I've even seen this, to be honest. Although, I did check before this. This film was number one at the box office when I was born, in May oh. 1988. So yeah, not a classic to, to have there. And then the film at three, this was number one when you were born, Bingham, which is Eddie Murphy's Coming to America. Which I think they're making a sequel of that for some bizarre reason. I don't think I've ever seen that. I watched it for the first time maybe two or three weeks ago, and yeah, it's not great. I feel like it won't have aged well. It's kind of maybe a bit trite to say this about a film that's an Eddie Murphy star vehicle, but it struck me mm. as quite racist, actually. Yeah. And he yeah. plays all the characters like the Nutty Professor, which, yeah, depends if you're in it that or not. Trading Place is no. a bit better in terms of his age. Ag- agreed, outfit. agreed. And then two, this is Robert Zemeckis's most famous film, <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I, I tell you, it, it, honestly, great film. Anytime I mention this to anyone over the age of like 50, they, I said Robert Zemeckis and they say, oh, that's the guy who did Who Framed Roger, Robert, Roger Rabbit. Not the guy who did Back from the Future. Or Forrest yeah. Gump. <laughs> or, any, <laughs> or any of those famous films. <laughs> Which does mean then, number one is Rain Man. Before you go on to, uh, I just wanted to point out, I don't know if you mentioned this last time we spoke about that, but you talked earlier about Big, where she has sex with a 13-year-old. In Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Bob Hoskins has sex with a cartoon. Better bestiality. 
it's, it's, it's a kids' film. You know, sex for the cartoon. Is it a kids' film though? I mean, well, like it's got cartoons in it. Whoever did the drawings for the rabbit, if, not for the rabbit, sorry, for Jessica Rabbit, was certainly not aiming that at children. Well, I mean, all I can say is you can say what you want about who framed Roger Rabbit, but it made Robert Zemeckis' career. <laughs> <laughs> and then that leaves us with the top film at the box office this year, um, which we will talk about in a bit more detail later. That is Rain Man, and it's the only film nominated for Best Picture that's in the top ten this year. So a bit of a change from particularly in the 70s when you had quite a lot of Best Picture nominees in the, the top 10 box office list. I don't miss out. Uh, well, I know, I know it's the top of the box office, but 1988, Beetlejuice was released, I think it was 88 from when I was looking at it. It's always a bit dodgy when you find the release dates on, on Google. Beetlejuice is nominated for an Oscar this year. So it won Best Makeup, which, I mean, well, that's fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. The, the other one I, that I'd looked at, because I'm a big De Niro fan, was um, Midnight Run. Which will fall straight into Mason's I don't like it. Well, it's an action comedy, isn't it? But it's pretty I, good. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I think you'd like Midnight Run. Midnight Run's really good. All right, I'll give it a go. I'd argue that it's quite similar and to the extent of some of the films that were nominated for Best Picture here. The main strength of it is the relationship between the two main characters in it, which is De Niro and... Well, I want to say Charles Grodin. Very good. So that is the top ten then. As I say, we will come back to Rain Man later. Mason, you picked this year, so you're going to kick us off with the first film, and that first film is Dangerous Liaisons. Why are you so angry with me? All I can offer you is my friendship. Can't you accept it? I could pretend to, but that would be dishonest. The man I used to be would have been content with friendship, and then set about trying to turn it to his advantage. But I've changed now. I can't conceal from you that I love you tenderly, Passionately, and above all, respectfully. So how am I to demote myself to the tepid position of friend? Not that you're even pretending to show friendship. What do you mean? Well, is this friendly? Why must you deliberately destroy my peace of mind? You were wrong to feel threatened by me, madame. Your happiness is far more important to me than my own. That is what I mean when I say that I love you. I think we should end this conversation. I shall leave you in possession of the field. Now, I'm guessing this is a film that few listeners will have seen, being as it is an 80s-made period drama set in 18th century France. However, if, like me, you're a teenage boy going through puberty in 1999, then you will definitely know of the softcore cult classic American High School remake, which is Cruel Intentions, the VHS of which I remember getting passed around my school in Wigan like a copy of Playboy, one particular scene being rather memorable. For those who've seen it, they'll know exactly the one that I mean. Anyway, the two plots of that, Cruel Intentions and Dangerous Liaisons, are identical, albeit they're set 200 years apart. So, Dangerous Liaisons has got uh, John Malkovich playing an aristocratic scoundrel, I'm going to say, for want of a better word, who seduces women at the drop of a hat and who strikes up a wager with another aristocrat, played, I would say, with relish by the underappreciated Glenn Close. Now, both characters have got incredibly French names in the film, so... Rather than refer to them by their character names, I'm just going to call them by their actor names. And I'll say that 
In the film, Glenn Close wants John Malkovich to seduce and take the virginity of Glenn's ex, his current fiance. Quite a convoluted setup, but it works out well. And that fiance is played by a very young Uma Thurman. Now, Malkovich initially declines, says he's already set up a seduction plot of his own to try to seduce the buttoned-up Michelle Pfeiffer, who's staying with his aunt. However, when Glenn Close tells Malkovich that if he succeeds in taking of Uma Thurman's virginity, which, by the way, she wants confirmed in writing, okay, don't know if she's going to get that, but whatever, uh, then she'll allow him to have a one-night stand with her, which he's wanted for some time. That's the setup that happens in the first five minutes of the film. The story then goes away from there. Again, for people of a certain age and for Cruel Intentions fans, John Malkovich is Ryan Philippe, Glenn Close is Sarah Michelle Geller. Michelle Pfeiffer is Reese Witherspoon, and Uma Thurman is Selma Blair. Anyone who's seen Cruel Intentions already knows exactly how this film plays out. Now, uh, I would say the film is very Shakespearean in both the intricate dialogue, the expertly weaved plotting, and the ultimate tragic ending, which is foreshadowed throughout, as often happens in Shakespearean dramas. And I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was fast-paced for a period drama, I found it to be tense and gripping, which again is something you don't often get from a period piece. And I thought it was so well acted from what I've already said are underappreciated actors. I thought in particular the scenes between Glenn Close and John Malkovich, uh, electric, two actors at the top of the game trying to outwit one another, just superb. Supporting cast is top draw too, as well as the aforementioned Thurman and Pfeiffer. You've also got Peter Capaldi, you've got Keanu Reeves, who isn't in it much, but he's got an important role. And finally, I thought that some of the themes in the film, you've got sexual politics, you've got gaslighting, you've got male-female power balances, they're still incredibly prescient at the moment. And I thought this film is something that strikes and tackles 21st century touch points, despite the original story that this film was based on being written 300 years ago. Uh, We've seen a few period dramas so far on this podcast and for me this was the best we've seen so far do you agree Luke Watson? Partly would be my answer to that I'll say first off I'm glad that you've just used the actors names because the character names I struggled with it way from the beginning I mean you've got like I'll just use John Malkovich's one as an example. Vicomte de Valmont. That, that's that's just going to be difficult, especially when every character seems to have three parts three of their names. name and yeah. very French-sounding names. I agree with you. I think for a period drama, which is, as I've said before, not my favourite genre, this is pretty fast-paced. It's very Shakespearean. Glenn Close and John Malkovich play off each other really well. Ultimately, they are two people who lack the courage to say that they love each other so they spend their time playing games with other people as a way to avoid revealing their true feelings Mm -hmm. I do think that John Malkovich is slightly miscast he's good, he's a good actor but I don't buy him as the charismatic Lothario that he's portrayed as in the film Can I just say, he has got a fantastic long and bald (laughs) He does have a fantastic long and bald (laughs) It's like I, I think this is a, a lot of fun. It's very fast paced. I would still say Cruel Intentions is a film that I quite like, and it's one of Kerry's favourite films. So I've seen it more than more than I would have chosen to see it. This, this is a different take on it, and it's it's an enjoyable film. Bingham, you must have enjoyed the costumes in this at the very least. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was looking for. So I, I watched this on a Friday or Saturday night, and you know this might speak volumes for my Friday or Saturday nights. 
But I could not... Anytime I looked at Glenn Close, I just couldn't get the image of Mrs. Doubtfire out of my head. She looks like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> I, I can see that, yeah. It was playing on my mind the, the full way through. And again, I take your point on Malkovich. I couldn't decide whether he was good in this or he was awful. And I, I think he's he's not good or awful. He, he's, you know, reasonable. I, I don't really know what role John Malkovich should really play in a film, apart from when he's, like, sliding about his own mind. I don't know whether he's wooden or he's playing a theatrical part, I suppose. In terms of the film itself, I actually enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I thought the first hour was was very good. It slowed down a little bit after that. We talked about the names. It was difficult to follow. I mean, the Chevalier, which was um, Keanu Reeves' character, which is definitely the youngest, by the way, I've ever seen Keanu Reeves in a film. And this must have came before Bill and Ted, which was probably, well, it was late 80s, so 89, 90, I don't know. But the di- the dialogue was a lot of hoity-toity pish. Like, it went on for, for forever, and I was like struggling to in combination with these random names, I was struggling to figure out what was going on. There was one thing that I did want to point out, and we do love on this podcast, stupid deaths. Now, John Malkovich's character here, his death takes a fucking long time. So I, I timed it, I went back and timed it. So he gets, and spoiler, but there's spoilers on this podcast, he gets stabbed and it takes him two minutes and 45 seconds to die. And he shows no no pain. He's got like a bloody sword uh, right through the chest. Goes through a big flaming narrative like you would expect in a Shakespeare type play. Doesn't show any pain. And then Cam is beans. He's dead. He's half. Yeah, you see, Cruel Intentions does that better because they just have him get run over by a car. Clean death. If, see, if you don't like the dialogue, so Cruel Intentions will sort you right out. It simplifies it right down. Uh, the other thing I said I'd just written down was, and this again maybe been into my Friday or Saturday night. I, I wrote, it must have been a nightmare at that time, trying to get your hole because you have to spend all day writing letters to buds. <laughs> must also take absolutely ages to get out of those outfits to even get into the bedroom first. That's a very good point. So dangerous liaisons then, our first film. So this was nominated for seven. Oscars, I'm sure those that have listened to the podcast can probably guess what some of these will be. It's your costume design, your art design, your best score. It was also nominated alongside Best Picture for Best Actress for Glenn Close, Best Supporting Actress for Michelle Pfeiffer and Best Adapted Screenplay. It won three awards. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay, Costume Design and Art Direction. So pretty successful haul for Dangerous Liaisons. Can I just add one thing on that? That we also, I think, what you spoke about it, and it's something I love in a film, is right at the end when you get to see a character and the last scene is them soaking up all the things that's happened to them. The last scene in this is brilliant with Glenn Close sort of using a baby wipe, which they didn't have at this time in France. I've got a question that the, the use of that, but <laughs> you see all the emotions running through her as she's wiping off her makeup. It's a, it's a really powerful scene. Yeah. She's a cracker, is there, Glenn? Despite looking like Mrs. Delphire. <laughs> Glenn Close is, uh, is one of these actresses that will come up quite a few times as we do different episodes and still hasn't won an Oscar, which is a bit of a, a shame, really, given the quality of performances she's put in over her career. So, next film then. I'm going to hazard a guess that, like myself, many people listening to this podcast have probably never heard of this film. That film is The Accidental Tourist, which I'll, I'll talk about after we have this little bit of advice for business travellers. The 
business traveler should bring only what fits in a carry-on bag. Checking your luggage is asking for trouble. One suit is plenty if you take along travel-sized packets of spot remover. The suit should be medium gray. Gray not only hides the dirt, but is handy for sudden funerals. Always bring a book as protection against strangers. Magazines don't last, and newspapers from elsewhere remind you you don't belong. But don't take more than one book. It is a common mistake to overestimate one's potential free time and consequently overpack. In travel, as in most of life, less is invariably more. I consider myself a bit of a film buff, hence writing a film blog and starting this podcast, so I'm going to consider this film a particular rarity in that it's a film that I hadn't even heard about before watching it. Didn't know anything about the title or anything about it, so I purposely avoided anything about it, went into it blind, and yeah, it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. The Accidental Tourist is a drama about a character called Macon Leary who is a travel writer who specialises in writing books for people who dislike travelling, or specifically for business travellers, as the film puts it. He's depressed, and his marriage has fallen apart after the murder of his child. The film follows him as he basically coasts through life in a really distant way. He lives alone until he moves in with his family after suffering an accident. He doesn't really communicate with anybody. He meets a woman called Muriel, who works at a local dog home and she tries to coax him out of his malaise with varying results. It's a really understated film, I would say. If I had to sum it up in a couple of lines, I'd say it's a movie about a man's journey to take control of his life again. He's been very passive since his child died, which is understandable, and that makes it quite a difficult film to warm to. But I did quite like this film. It's very odd. It's not an easy film to get into, but I think I found myself getting into the, the characters. I particularly like Gina Davis, who plays Muriel. And I think the film does start to work its way into your heart. It's also about the complications of modern relationships. And as I mentioned at the start, his marriage has fallen apart. And his wife, Sarah, played by Kathleen Turner, does come back into it again as he becomes more involved with Muriel. And he's probably the, the strangest character to be in the middle of a love triangle in a film because he's not exactly the kind of character that's going for it. But I actually felt that it worked its way towards an ending that felt quite earned and I actually was quite moved by, uh, which wasn't something that I was expecting from how the film played out. I will also say as well about this film that it's funnier than you would perhaps think it would be. So all of the business travel advice is, is hilarious in a completely tone-deaf kind of way. And I'm sorry to any kind of American listeners because I think it's poking fun at Americans who can't go on holiday without finding somewhere to have a burger and enjoy an American light experience. It's also got a dog in it that's very cute. Mason, you don't like dogs. I'm sure you hated the stuff with the dog because the dog is a little bastard. But it's, very it's, it's, uh, it's funny and, and I like that. The other thing that I'll say just before um, see what you guys thought about it is it's directed by a guy called Lawrence Kasdan who I'm sure may ring a bell to some people. The reason for that is that he is a writer who was involved in the screenwriting for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, which could not be more removed from what this film is about. So, a bit of a departure for Lawrence Kasdan, but this is the, the film that got him the highest recognition of his career. 
Stick to stick to Star Wars, mate. That's what I would say. <laughs> so let's go. Let's go to Bingham. What was your thoughts on the accidental tourist? This film is weird, man. It's hard to pinpoint why exactly it's weird. So if I, I roll back a second before I explain that, is I should like this film, right? I, I love films where folks' lives fall to bits. This guy's life takes an absolute slide down the hill, man, in the first minutes. I timed it. Five minutes in, he's getting pissed off by some guy sitting next to him in the plane. Ten minutes in, his wife's left him, and you learn about he's got a dead kid. 24 minutes in, his dog jumps on him in the basement and breaks his leg and then bites his hand. So you're thinking 25 minutes, I'm sort of like, this is good, man. Like, have we better have, you know, a bit of depression, see how he goes with it. But I don't know. It was just really weird. And I have to disagree with some of the acting performances I thought were very wooden. And I don't know if it's not helped by, so it's Will Hart who played the main character, and he is trying to, I get the point, he's like a, you know, emotionally detached guy who is almost floating through life without really um, interacting with anyone else. And the whole point is the film is he sort of gets over that. But it's really wooden and it's not helped that his wife is even worse, who I think that's Kathleen Turner that plays her. I really didn't think those performances were good. There was no chemistry between them, albeit she is not and doesn't play a large part of the film. On on the flip side, Gina Davis is very good. And I sort of thinking, like, what are you doing, mate? And this bird's like, for some reason, absolutely offering herself out. She looks younger than him for a start. Basically, his wife's just left him. She's like, yeah, I'm a divorcee. And he's sort of like, no, well, I'm not really bothered about you. I'll, I'll basically palm you off. Like, mate, come on, play the game. In defence of... Kathleen Turner and William Hart. The way I read it, anyways, the they are purposely meant to be a bit distant because they've grown apart since the death of their child. So I think that does play into the performances. I do take the point though; it's it's hard to warm to the characters. They are distant and don't really get closer. Yeah, I think that's the point too, isn't it? I didn't feel I connected to him or or really any of the characters, to be honest. The other thing, the score is excellent, and I think that makes it even more kind of weird. Because it's a little piano scored, and I almost felt like it was some sort of dreamy film that I'd like fell asleep and like dreamt some of it. I can't, I can't put my finger on why that's the case. John Williams score. Oh, John Williams good. is always good. That's why, it's, that's why it's good. I'm with you being on this. William Hurt's performance is so one note and monotone, and I get that he's sad because his kid's dead, but Jesus, mate, have an ice cream or something. <laughs> I, like you, didn't know anything about this film, and start when I put it on. You've got that initial voiceover that we heard in the clip. And that reminded me of the uh, Baz Luhrmann Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen song. Because it's just a guy in monotone explaining how you get through certain situations. And I, I love that song. It's got me in a good mood early doors. But honestly, this film is so bleak. It's left me on a right downer. Like I said, at the start, it's okay. That I like the voiceover. Dark, some dark humour in it. The family that he goes to stay with are super weird. They're in a creepy house. And that family dynamic reminded me a little bit of the brothers and sisters in Knives Out, which is another Star Wars connection because of Ryan Johnson. But honestly, I wish I'd watched either Knives Out or even the video for the sunscreen film because they're both a better watch than this. It was just... It's maybe a film that there's a reason why we don't know that much about it these days because it's not a film that's been particularly remembered. It did win one Oscar out of the four that it was nominated for and that was for Supporting Actress, which was Gina Davis. And she is the best thing about the film alongside the score, which was also nominated. Yeah, she's the only bit of sunshine in it. The one bit we've got to mention, and this probably plays into the fact that it's very weird, 
there's a bit where Gina Davis takes in Will Hurt's character into her house. This is after he writes a letter to say, no, I'm not coming for dinner. Again, why are we writing letters? Like, I know it's 1988, but come on, for God's sake. She undresses him and puts him to bed like some sort of fucking creepy oh, sandman. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, really odd. And it, it plays into the point that I said around it just... I, I couldn't get my head around whether it was making some sort of joke around this or that I was meant to believe this was, like, taking it seriously. It was weird. Anyway... Yeah, so we'll move on to film number three then, which is Working Girl. Bingham, you're going to talk us through this after this clip. Perfect. Everything's in place. For what? Man I've been seeing for a while. I think he's it. And I think this could be the weekend we decide. He said there was something very important he wanted to discuss with me. I think he's going to pop the question. You do? I think so. We're in the same city now. I've indicated that I'm receptive to an offer. I've cleared the month of June. And I am, after all, me. Well, what if he doesn't pop the question? (laughs) I really don't think that's a variable. Tess, you know, you don't get anywhere in this world by waiting for what you want to come to you. You make it happen. Watch me, Tess. Learn from me. Given I've spoken about fashion or dress sense within films in almost every podcast, not intentionally, by the way, it seems to fall on me to introduce what is literally the most 80s film of the 80s, and that's the American rom-com Working Girl, directed by Mike Nichols. Before I even get into this, I'm going to have to talk about how 80s this is. And the first five minutes of it are the more 80s than, I don't know, AHA's take on me. You've got classic montage, got Rush Hour in Wall Street, cut with a boat floating about the Hudson or East River. You see the absolutely wild 80s fashion of the folk cutting about Wall Street, most notably the big hair. So you think, I don't know, Cindy Lauper mixed with John Bon Jovi, if his hair was on lassies, and you've got belt and shoulder pads. Now, this is also shot to the sounds of a, frankly, (laughs) a fucking awful song. A choral power ballad with an African tribal drum beat, Let the River Run by Carly Simon, which also won the Oscar. In short, this is like injecting the 80s into your veins. So what's that about? To be honest, it's a relatively simple corporate Cinderella story. You've got the main protagonist, Tess, played by newcomer at the time, Melanie Griffiths, uh, who is working as a, or who is a working class girl, sorry, working as a stockbroker secretary. And she aspires to climb the career ladder in what is a completely male dominated environment or a man's world, as uh, James Brown said better than me. She's on Last Chance Saloon when she is assigned as a secretary to Catherine Parker, who is played by Sigourney Weaver. And they get along pretty well until Catherine breaks her leg and Tess sees a film on her boss's computer which indicates that Catherine was going to nick Tess's idea and claim it as her own. This spurs Tess to undertake a elaborate deception as she masquerades around, pretends to be Catherine, whilst figuring out a way to meet a guy called Jack Trainer, who is played by Harrison Ford, who, lo and behold, is the guy that's going to take forward a frankly rubbish idea. Now, 
I suspect this film made big waves because it is a big girl power film. And I was going to say it jumped on that bandwagon. It was probably that early. It might have been driving that bandwagon, to be perfectly honest. But I'm going to tell you why that's not the case. I'm going to tell you why this film has the most questionable morals that it just cannot be considered a girl, girl power film. So let me get this straight. Tess is meant to be this nicey-nicey wee mouse with a wee soft voice that floats around, but she is a devious sneaky bitch. She gets hired by Catherine, who help, looks to help her get promoted, encourages her to bring ideas. She's like, you're not just the bod that answers the phone. You know, we're a team. I'll help you, and, you know, get that big promotion, help you climb the ladder. No, no, no. Catherine breaks her leg. So Tess is like, oh, well, I might as well pretend to be her. Um, can you go and have a look after my house? Yeah, no problem. I'll just dress up as you. I'll use your sex exerciser machine. Now, that, that is absolutely out of order. And then snips on her emails further, nicks her partner, Harrison Ford, and all because she believes that Catherine was going to nick her idea, which, by the way, you later find out isn't actually the case and she had good intentions. So despite being a sneaky little liar, she ends up getting a high-flying job at the end, whilst poor old Catherine who's only dead nice to her, gets absolutely shat on, gets her partner nicked and then gets sacked. And saying all that, before I just push it round to one of yours, you might have to check my temperature here because I actually found bits of this rather funny and enjoyed it more than I thought I would. That's not to say that I think it's Oscars quality. I think this is a watchable film that, you know, if you want to inject 80s into your veins and crack on. Sigourney Weaver is not the innocent party here. She does steal the idea, I think, unless I completely missed it. When she says that oh, I was I was really going to uh, give you the credit for it, she's just bullshitting to cover her tracks, in my opinion. Mm. Well, I don't know. Anyway, I agree with you on the fact that this is a, it's a half-decent film, this. It's a throwaway bit of nonsense. It's probably a popcorn film to get the girls around on a Saturday afternoon and watch it. But... It's not Oscar worthy. And I say, I don't mean to be patronising when I say that. It's just, it passes two hours quite easily, but it has no powerhouse performances. It has none of the Oscar bait. You know, sometimes that's used in a negative way, but nothing about this film screams Oscars. It's something that would sit quite nicely alongside Pretty Woman, say. But that's not to say that it's not good. I enjoyed it. Harrison Ford uses charisma. Melanie Griffith uh, is very funny in it. It's got a nice happy ending, which none of the other films this year have seemed to have bothered with. You know, there's some silly scenes in it. Sigourney Weaver trying to seduce Harrison Ford is funny. I did thought it was quite comical how after we're led to believe how Melanie Griffiths is a serious businesswoman who's had this idea that's going to change a company's uh, forecast. After closing the deal, she has a big snog with Harrison Ford right outside the boardroom, which, you know, seems a bit silly. The film is very patronising, I agree. It's not girl power. Even the film's title is patronising. Working girl. I mean, come on. So, in in summary, it's a decent film. It's three stars. That's about it. This film's a lot of fun. I like this film a lot. I kind of agree that it's not Oscar-worthy, but I think that's... Do you not think that we are being slightly patronising with that view, that we're basing it on the fact it's a comedy, it's a rom-com, rom-coms aren't Oscar-worthy? I think we're being a little bit patronising, but I, I, I take the point. I did enjoy this a lot. What I will say is, <laughs> I do agree with your reading, Bingham. Not that Scorny Weaver didn't deserve what was coming to her, because I'm with Mason. She was definitely going to 
fuck Melanie Griffiths over, so she just got in there first. But I think I think this is a a, a much more cynical, satirical film than it perhaps appears at first. On one hand, you're you're looking at it that you could read it in the way that one woman has to fuck over another to get to the top. Or the other way you read it is that one woman does what she can to rise to the top of a male-dominated environment. Either way, she has to use underhanded tactics to get there, which is perhaps making the point that at that time, the only way for a woman to get to the top is to play dirty. And I think it, it kind of plays into that. Melanie Griffiths and Harrison Ford are very good, good chemistry. It's well-directed. It's Mike Nichols who did The Graduate, who's the director, so it's probably more competent a director than you would generally get for a rom-com. So it zips along quite well. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's not the kind of thing that is going to stick in your mind for too long, but for two hours, I did I did really enjoy it. And I think the one thing I will say to counter your kind of girl power points, and yes, it's one of those films that probably looked a lot more progressive in 1988 than it does with hindsight. But I do think it was good how the ending focused on her career and not on finding a man. So the ending was focused on she'd made it in her career. Not that she'd got the guy. And, yeah, I thought that was a smart way to finish the film. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Some really funny bits in it, which I found quite surprising. So I was absolutely pushing myself at Catherine Parker when she was on the mountain, dressed in a big red dress, or a big, sorry, a big red uh, skiing costume when she goes down the side of the mountain and breaks her leg to an 80s tune. That's pretty funny. I also think there's plenty bits of this which are unintentionally funny. Well, not unintentionally funny, that's that's unfair. So there's a bit where it has some forward has been in the office all night and this is the most skillful thing I've ever seen a man do, is he put, takes a shirt out of the packet that he's bought from the shop and puts it on and doesn't have those crease lines uh, all down where it's been folded. And then he gets a cheer from all the women in the office. He does get all the I was going to say that. That's quite funny. Also, you have uh, Alec Baldwin in this film playing the same role that Alec Baldwin plays in all films. Uh, untrustworthy, greasy slimeball bastard. Alec Baldwin looks really old in this film, despite it being 30 <laughs> years ago. I genuinely think he looks better now than he did in this. Uh, he does play that role in every film. There's one, there's one other thing I wanted to add about this, and it's a cracking bit of trivia. So Melanie Griffiths was relatively unknown before this film and then developed a massive coke habit and went to rehab after. But apparently she spent four of her formative years living in an African jungle bungalow with about 70 lions, jaguars and tigers. She also frequently slept with a lion in her bed when she was a girl. And it was documented in a film earlier in the 80s called Roar. Her and whoever she lived with, she lived with someone else had reconstructive surgery because she got attacked by the animals living there. Maybe that gave her the strength to you know, climb that career ladder after facing the, the braves of the lions in the house. I don't know. Well, she, she did get a, a nomination for Best Actress for Working Girl, um, one of six Oscar nominations this film got. Sigourney Weaver and Joan Cusack actually was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Sigourney Weaver was also nominated for Best Actress this year for her role in a film called Gorillas in the Mist. So... Rare to get two acting nominations in one year. She didn't win either of them, unfortunately for her. Best Picture, Best Director, and as you alluded to, Bingham, it did win for Best Original Song, which, I mean, this just sums up the nonsense that is the Best Original Song category, where they just give it to whatever catchy pop star has chosen to sing a song for a film. It's not a good song, This is rubbish. It's absolutely dreadful. Watch the video of this song. Uh, It has a guitar (laughs) solo in the middle of it, inexplicably, uh, in a power ballad, 
and it's got a guy in a suit playing a guitar, like a way over the top guitar solo in the middle of the office in the film. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. It's very catchy though. Me and, me and uh, Sarah had it on the other day and she just, like, I could hear her kicking about the stairs, whistling the bloody tune to it. But it's, it's not a good song. <laughs> so Working Girl then, that was our third film of the day. So we're, we're rattling through them today. And uh, we now move on to our second last of the show. And that film is Mississippi Burning. Stop! Mr. Anderson! Hell? I'm telling you to stop and I mean it. We're not killers. That's the difference between them and us. That's the difference between them and you. You're not any more like them than I am. Wrong. What do you care what I'd do with some sumbitch hiding behind a sheriff's badge? Don't you have the whole world to change? That's right, and I'm changing it. Oh, you're just as arrogant as you are stupid. You're changing it too. Well, damn well, I'm gonna make some changes right now. Don't be so stupid. Don't go messing this up just because you're partial to fooling around with witnesses. You! I don't mean shit to have a gun unless you're ready to use it. I'll kill you right now if you don't listen to what I have to tell you. Fuck you. Let me go. Let me go. We'll go after all of them. Together. You wouldn't know how. You're going to teach me how. You don't have the guts. Not only do I have the guts, I have the authority. What is that supposed to mean? New rules. We nail them any way we can, even your way. Is this you talking or some guy pulling your strings, huh? Both. We do it my way. With my people. Whatever it takes. Okay. Mississippi Burning. This is another film that the first time I watched it was in RE class. I think I mentioned when we talked about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that we had an RE teacher with good taste in films and um, instead of actually teaching us about religious education, we just tended to watch films. Or I think it was one of those RE classes that's kind of social education as well. So this is obviously a topical film because Mississippi Burning is about racism and specifically it's about an incident in the early 60s when two civil rights workers and um, someone that they were transporting were kidnapped and went missing in a rural part of Mississippi. So it's loosely based on a true story and this film basically follows two FBI agents played by Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe who are called in to investigate this particular case and they have to face up to hostility from the town's residents, local police and the Ku Klux Klan who are determined to stonewall their investigation at every opportunity. It's a really well cast film. Hackman and Defoe are excellent, particularly Hackman. They don't so much play good cop, bad cop as they play city cop, country cop. You've got Gene Hackman, who's the kind of folksy guy whose background's from Mississippi. He's got a slightly different style in terms of how he engages with the locals. Whereas Willem Dafoe's the type of character we've seen in numerous films before, that uptight, buttoned-up cop who's not really had much experience with real people. They work quite well together and it plays well for this film. I really like this film. I've seen this film a couple of times before. I think it's excellent. It's about an important subject. I like the way that it takes an important subject and reframes it in the guise of a gritty police drama. It's quite passionate. There's good characters. There's a lot of fighting. It's an angry film. I think this is a a really intense watch. It's good performances, a good story, and I really like Mississippi Burning. There's not much else that I can say about it than that, but... Intrigued to know what you guys thought of it, Mason. Thoughts on Mississippi Burning? 
Well, before I start talking about the film, let me tell you that this film is an absolute bastard to find on streaming in Ireland. Now, obviously, we at Revisiting the Oscars spit in the face of illegal downloads. Uh, so the only face, the only way for me to watch this was to sign up to a free trial of frigging Apple TV. And even then, I had to pay eight euros to buy the frigging film. So the question to be asked is, is this film worth eight euros? And I'm pleased to say, yes, it is. It is a super film, but it doesn't shy away from the brutality of what's going on. I love it. And I've described it as a good cop, bad cop, but I prefer your version of country cop, city cop. Uh, the dynamic between Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe is fantastic. The scenes they have together where they're arguing are brilliant watching. I also thought um, Francis McDormand is good in a quite subtle, understated role. And you can see from that early performance of hers how she's going to go on to become such a powerhouse actor. It's very well directed too, I thought. It's hard to believe that this is the same guy that's going to go on to make The Commitments. Such different films in tone in subject matter and credit to alan parker who directs this that you can go from one to the other so smoothly uh, i particularly like just taking a couple of bits out and i'm, I'm going to ask a question on this because i don't know whether or not my thinking is the same as yours but throughout the film you see short talking head segments where they are asking members of the local community where, where the crime has been committed what their thoughts are about the crime and they seem to me so real almost as though that they dropped in documentary footage in the middle of a drama did you think that or was that just me being being thick so they're real people from those towns and I, I want you might jump in and correct me here but i'm pretty sure i read they're real people from real towns but they were sort of encouraged what to say and it was almost an ad lib right. and I, I did see some commentary which said that when they were filming it they were actually almost taken aback that it could have been the the real thing that these people would say because, you know, it's so shocking, basically, what, what they're saying. Yeah. It really adds to the film, that, though. It's, it's brilliant. Oh, it does. Yeah, I, I don't know the background to this, but I would agree with what you've both said, that it, it feels like it is real people that are talking, so whether they're actors or not, they've done a fantastic job and it does add to the film. And just sorry to just... last My last thought is that we're watching this... We're recording this podcast on Election Day and it is... Difficult to watch this without seeing the parallels to America now. You've got portrayals in this film of racial divide, white supremacy, conspiracy theories, police corruption, judicial bias. And that's obviously something that's not only going on in America today, but it's something that's a topic that's discussed at the presidential debate, something that you wouldn't expect to still be going on in the year 2020, but still still occurring right now. There's a, there's a particularly good quote towards the end of the film, in a scene with uh, Willem Dafoe when they find one of the the characters who's committed suicide, uh, one of the characters who's under suspicion, and um, someone says, mm -hmm. why did he do that? Because he, he's not even guilty. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of anyone's guilty who watches this happen and does nothing. And yeah. I think that's a very, yeah. very important line that resonates in real life as much as it does in the film. Yeah, the thing that I would flag with it, and probably something that I didn't feel with some of the other films that we've just spoke about. You know, I think within the first 10 minutes here, you know you're watching, like, a top-notch film. You know, the scene, it, it's just so powerful from the start. You've got, you know, the church burning to to, to music, um, and it really imprints in your mind, and you straight away you just know it's going to be good. You touched on Hackman being brilliant in it. His character's brilliant. Like, I just love the, like... I've been around the block a bit. I'm the old dog. You know, I know how to sort of butter people up and get information out of them, but you don't want to fuck with him. You know, he, he is very adept at grabbing people's balls, quite literally, <laughs> in the film and 
he's a great character and I suppose obviously Hackman plays his, you know, an enormous part in that. And that that's not to say Defoe isn't great and I did like how you mentioned Francis, she was very understated, but play, played that part well that you, you kind of thought she is the, the shy, timid woman who really at some point or, or perhaps throughout the whole full film, but effectively gets the strength to say, like, this just isn't on. Um, we, we, I can't be having this. I've got to speak out against it. And it's a great moment in the film and she's, she's a really good character and, and it's played really well. This is the first film that we've watched with Gene Hackman in it in the episodes that we've done so far. And he will also crop up quite a few times because he's, a, I think, a two-time Oscar winner. He's certainly been nominated a few times. And I think this is as good an epitomisation as maybe his most famous roles like The French Connection, for example, that really shows why he is revered as such a top actor. He's absolutely embodies this character and I love the balance between him and the the kind of ways he goes about trying to get the information he needs, particularly in how he he both manipulates Francis McDormand's character but also genuinely likes her and starts to build that relationship. I know this is a, a serious subject matter film, so just on a lighter note, can we talk about how big the FBI's budget is? So in the film, Willem Dafoe seems to have an unlimited budget for this case. They've got like literally hundreds of people working on it. They rent a cinema randomly as their base. And then at one point, the owner of the hotel refuses to house the FBI investigators because he thinks it's bad for business. So they buy the hotel. I mean... I know. I know. Come on, lads. (laughs) Yes, I I did read in, in terms of the true story. So they did call in numerous, like, lots of FBI agents to help with the search for the bodies. I'm sceptical that the stuff about the hotel is uh, is true, but can't confirm, nor deny. They could have been doing with, and I feel like the resident fashionista here, but they could have been doing with, you know, spending some money on the clothes for Hackman. Why is his tie so short? This really annoyed me through the full <laughs> film. His tie is, like, thing. woefully short. <laughs> yeah, I know, of course it was. Uh, also, on a lighter note, uh, I've got one one light point and one um, perhaps serious point. But what was Frances McDormand's character watching when she um, gets attacked? She was watching a cheddar cheese competition on the TV. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know about you. And it, the film zooms in on it and plays like a bit from it. And I'm like, am I supposed to see something symbolic by this or anything? And it's literally a competition talking about cheese before she gets battered, basically. Very strange. I think it was one of those things where you have to... You, they show you three... Much like in What I Lie to You, they show you three people and you have to guess which one of them is the cheese king. That's what I got from it. <laughs> but yeah, I would like to see more of that. Uh, yeah, that yeah. The one thing that I wanted to raise was... And I, I guess the question what, question to you two would be, do you think this tarnishes the film to an extent and the fact that it is quite historically inaccurate? So... I, I toyed with it in my own mind because you sort of have the FBI coming in here and almost sorting out the problem themselves, which clearly isn't the case. And it does slightly annoy me that there isn't a bigger role for some of the black activists during that time. So the only real person in the black community in the film who speaks up is a young kid and the rest of the community yeah. is uh, almost uh, sort of feared into silence, which wasn't quite the case during that 60s movement, and I, I did wonder whether it, it takes it away a little bit from the film or not. I don't know what you thought. So I I don't think it does. I'm going to actually quote Alan Parker, the director, because he's been asked about this, and his response was, 
in defence, um, he stated that it was fiction in the same way that Platoon and Apocalypse Now are fictions of the Vietnam War, but the important thing is the heart of the truth, the spirit. I defend the right to change it in order to reach an audience who knows nothing about the realities and certainly don't watch PBS documentaries. So my personal view is that I think there's an argument for making a case that you maybe have larger roles for some of the black characters. I think the kind of purpose here, he's telling the story through the eyes of the FBI that came in to solve the crime, so it's naturally going to be from their viewpoint. It doesn't mean that they have solved racism, it's just this particular pocket where they have made a difference, a small incremental difference. I don't know what you guys think. I think it's probably an easy stick to beat it with by saying that it's guilty of white saviour narrative, but... I think Alan, I think I agree with Alan Parker there. It's an important story that needs telling. And ultimately, in the 60s, if you've got the FBI investigating a crime, in the 1960s, they're going to all be white, all the detectives. And I agree that you could have perhaps brought out a bit more of the black characters who are in it. We often go into the suburbs where the black characters live. We don't spend long there. We're only there when the white characters are there. So I can see how you might have been able to raise their profiles a little bit. But I don't think it detracts from the film that you're focused primarily on the investigation rather than what the crime is. You know, I raised that point just as a debate thing. I, I think the film is made with good intentions and that's probably enough that, or enough that I need to say on it. I think it was, you know, it's a very powerful movie. I was quite surprised after watching this that, I mean, I think this is a cracking movie. And when you look to see what score it's got in Rotten Tomatoes and that, that it's like mid-80s or something. And I find that very surprising because for me it's it's way better than that. And I suspect some of the the points that's been chopped off for it is um, down to the historical inaccuracies. Before we move further, there's the most ridiculous bit of trivia I think I've ever read for a film uh, that I wanted to highlight here. Alan Parker and his crew whipped up batches of what they called OMD, or Old Man's Dick. This is an ugly mix of purple, yellow and brown, which was painted on every piece of set, every chair, every tabletop, every prop. They made up a dye and dipped all the costumes in it. And uh, Stephen Tobolowski, who saw the, the process firsthand, went to the film's premiere and wondered why the stuff wasn't showing up on screen. And Parker ambushed him and said, you know, afterwards and asked him, what did you see? And Tobolowski said, I didn't see any of that OMD. And Parker replied, I didn't ask you what you didn't see, I asked you what you saw. And Tobolowski suddenly realised that his eyes were drawn to the black actor's skin. So Alan's, so Alan's face turned a lovely red and he said, right. Tobolowski said, well, the, the only thing OMD didn't touch was human skin. So you watch the film and the OMD is invisible, but it gives everything else except the human skin a dull sameness so it makes your eyes look elsewhere to the human skin which is the most important visual in the film about racism bloody hell and it is true when you watch the film particularly in the when it's in the the homes of the the black communities the houses look like they've been shrouded in like some sort of dystopian radiation and you know to, to demonstrate the, the poverty they, they, they lived in and how downbeat these communities were to the and the segregation to the white communities so it, it gives that effect and it does make you focus on the people within those within those communities and the, the points that they raise very good yeah it's always interesting finding out some of those random tactics that have been used to just enhance how how a film works Regardless of how Mississippi Burning is regarded today, it was regarded well at the time, got seven Oscar nominations, 
only winning one of them, but it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, Frances McDormand for Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Sound, Film Editing and Best Cinematography, which is the award that it did win in the end. That then takes us on to our final film of this episode. And that film, as we talked very briefly about earlier, is Rain Man. Toothpicks. He needs some toothpicks. Can we just get him some toothpicks over here? And I'll see you in court. Let me check. Sorry about the toothpicks. 82, 82, 82. 82 what? How much is this? Toothpicks. It's a lot more than two toothpicks, right? Of course. 246 total. Good change. Right. How many toothpicks are you? Um, 250. Pretty close. Come on, let's go, Ray. 246. There's four left in the box. So I feel like Rain Man is one of those films where, a bit like we had Jaws in the last pod, even if you haven't seen it, you'll be aware of it and some of the cultural references from it. But for those who don't know it, to be quite simplistic, Rain Man is a body movie with a soft centre. So you have... Tom Cruise playing Charlie Babbitt, who I would describe as a wannabe big shot. Uh, He's a car salesman in LA who finds out that his estranged father has died. And then after the funeral, he learns that the vast majority of his dad's $3 million estate has been left to a brother that he didn't even know he had, who is Raymond Babbitt, who's played by Dustin Hoffman. And Ray has autism. And as such, she's living in a residential home for those with learning difficulties. So what follows as uh, Charlie and Ray get to know each other is a road trip where Charlie takes Ray from the home and they drive across country together, getting in, I suppose, various scrapes along the way. Now, if I hadn't mentioned Ray's autism, you might think that this was a comedy caper, perhaps in the vein of Planes, Trains and Automobiles, which incidentally came out the same year as Rain Man. And you'd be kind of right. The section of this film which uh, are played for laughs in a way that I don't think you'd perhaps get away with in 2020. Uh, I would argue that Ray's autism is portrayed as a superpower throughout. He has special skills, which is how they refer to them in the film. For example, counting cards, being able to do quick math equations, being able to memorise long pieces of information. And there's also an element of stress as a viewer when you're watching it. I think it's uncomfortable to see Charlie's repeated frustration and lack of empathy towards Ray. There's a very problematic scene where Charlie's girlfriend seduces Ray in a lift, which uh, is, I would say, completely inappropriate, and one which I suspect would have caused outrage had the genders have been reversed. However, performance-wise, you have to say Dustin Hoffman is excellent as Ray. You do completely buy into his discomfort and his struggle with being outside his comfort zone and I think it's important to establish that Hoffman did put the work in here he spent time with autistic families to learn the tics and patterns so that he could accurately represent what autism is like it's not a one-note performance he Hoffman's in this perhaps gives the performances of his career and that's someone you know we've already discussed on this part about how good he was in Kramer versus Kramer he's excellent in this but somebody else who's good in this is Tom Cruise now Tom Cruise had just come off the back of Top Gun and Cocktail. And to take a role on of somebody who in this film is incredibly unlikable, I would say is testament to him as an actor. I did wonder if the audience is supposed to warm to him, which, by the way, I absolutely did not. 
Uh, and I wonder why uh, Susanna, who's his girlfriend, who we've already mentioned, I, I've wondered why she stayed with him. Because to bring up one of the words that we often state in this podcast, he's an arsehole all the way through the film. Anyway, I should also point out that even though I've mentioned some of the problems that I have with this film, the huge success of it, and it's worth saying this, the huge success, success of it, we mentioned earlier that it was number one in the uh, box office chart. It did lead to millions being given to autism research. Arguably, the autistic spectrum is only so well understood today by the general public because of touchstone films like this. So you can't deny that the film has got a massive legacy. In terms of a film... There's better films this year, but it's certainly a film that says, um, I don't want to say lasted the test of time because there are problems with it. However, it's a film that people would still go back to and watch because it's one of the cornerstone 80s films. Troublesome for me. Bingham, what do you think? It's, it's weird. I've seen it before probably a couple of times and it is really well known. And I'd take that point about Jaws. It's a road trip film love road trip films generally and the real strength of the film is really the relationship between and, and, and indeed the chemistry between Charlie and Raymond and I really like how that relationship develops through the film. I also think that the, the direction is is really good and it, it's a really difficult film for, if you, if you take a step back from this, there is a very fine balance here that's got to be hit between being sentimental and overly cheesy which I, I think it largely escapes and, and hits the right note Set in the sort of sentiment wise, but also comedy because you know if it oversteps the mark in comedy, it is going to get the, the burning eyes that they're taking a piss out of autistic people, which it certainly doesn't do. And I actually think it, you know, it's it's relatively groundbreaking in terms of bringing that to a wider audience. You know, I think it's 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 a really good film. Probably stealing the thunder on whether um, you know I agree it's it should have been best picture for me. There's better films this year, uh, and I'm sort of in the same the same boat as you, Mason. I think this is quite dated. I've watched it a couple of times before, and what I was thinking when I was watching this this time was I'd really liked it on the couple of occasions I found I saw it before. I think my feelings were starting to change for whatever reason, and I'd say that sometimes you rewatch films and it deepens your understanding and you appreciate extra elements that you maybe missed the first time. Other times you start to nitpick, and I started to nitpick with this. So maybe it's more on me than it is on the film, but I did think it was quite dated. I agree with what you've both said, that it's well acted, Hoffman's good, Tom Cruise is good, although he is an even bigger arsehole than I remember from the the first couple of times I've seen this film. Hoffman's very good. I think it's easy to forget that because his role and the Oscar that he won for this has became a bit of a running joke in Hollywood that if you play someone with a disability, it'll win you an Oscar. Tropic Thunder's probably the, the most famous example of that, which I won't quote the line for obvious reasons but I do think Dustin Hoffman is very good in this role and I think whilst similar to what we said about a couple of the other films whilst it's maybe not as progressive as it seems at the time I think ultimately it did have a positive impact overall the filmmakers mean well they do want to help raise awareness about autism even if their full understanding of it isn't quite as as accurate as what it is I mean as Mason said it's not a superpower but I think that speaks to the lack of understanding of something 32 years ago it's a nice film, it's an enjoyable film I think I probably liken it to something like Forrest Gump and that it's a film that you could watch numerous times and it's quite an easy one to just sit on in the background I, I know we're going to come to this anyway um, for me it's not the best film of this year and I don't think it's aged as well as some of the films that we've watched but I, I don't really have much complaint with it 
it's, it's a good enough film, I guess. It feels a bit one-dimensional. The only point I was going to say, and not about the film, but I watched this film with Sinead, my partner, who I watched most of these films with. This was the first ever Tom Cruise film she'd seen. How do you get to 30 years old and not have seen a Tom Cruise film? I think it's because he's got this reputation now where people think he's a bit weird, so maybe she would stay away from him. And this film is perhaps not the best Tom Cruise film to introduce you to him being as much of an arsehole that he is in it. Regardless of what Tom Cruise is like as a person, and there's been numerous stuff done in that, so I don't think we need to necessarily go into that. But as an actor, he is a good actor. He has generally veered more towards kind of like popular action movie type roles, but he's pretty good in them. He's good in the Mission Impossible films. He's still good in them. That's the newer films in that series are still pretty good. And when he does choose to take on a more serious role, he's he's pretty good. Oh, he was on an absolute roll as well. I mentioned that he before this film done Top Gun and Cocktail. After this, he goes on to do Born on the Fourth of July and A Few Good Men. So this is Tom Cruise at his absolute peak, I would say. The other thing I was going to say. In- I was disappointed, Watty, that you haven't mentioned it when you said uh, the film is dated. What is it with the body 80s and those African, like, panpipe songs? This, I'm glad you've brought this up because I've wrote down in my notes, it has a classic 80s soundtrack, that tinny score. Now, I I have no idea how you would describe it, but those African pipes is the right way. (laughs) It is, I mean, I know we said Working Girl is very 80s, and it absolutely is, but Rain Man, particularly the score, is incredibly 80s. (laughs) That score seemed to be in loads of films at that time. It's like, watch, it doesn't matter whether it's a Arnold Schwarzenegger film like Commando or an Oscar winner like Rain Man, they all have this bloody tinny score. Yeah, I saw that the, I read that the director of this said that he didn't want the score to have strings in it because he thought that would make people feel too, that it was too sentimental. But to replace strings with panpipes is a bit of an odd choice. Yeah, I think maybe they just dis- first discovered panpipes in the 80s along with their kiwi fruit. <laughs> it reminds me of and I've not seen them for a few years but they used to Sarah used to always laugh at me when I was uh, walking down the main street or walking down Brigate and Leeds is those boys that come out and play the panpipes in like the city centres uh, around Britain and like try and flog their CD I mean no one is buying those CDs I'm I sorry I, I'm going to confess my mum bought two of those CDs and I'll tell you what two of them t- two of them they, they played in Stirling Town Centre I must say it's quite soothing I've still got them on my iTunes and see, uh, see if I'm no. like a bit hungover and just want to chill to something I will put that on I'll send you are they doing uh, like are they, are they doing pan pipe versions of pop songs or are you just no it's, it's their own pan pipe melodies it's, it's their own oh, tunes own <laughs> just the, the same song for like 12 hours straight <laughs> They did seem to be super popular for a while, though. I've not seen them kicking about town centres for a while. Been replaced nah. by teenagers mm. with guitars. Anyway, Rain Man, obviously, last film, Best Picture winner. We know this. It won three others as well. So Hoffman we talked about for Best Actor, won Best Original Screenplay, and Barry Levinson won Best Director as well. Also was nominated for Best Original Score, believe it or not. God knows how that got a nomination. Cinematography, Art Direction, and Film Editing. I guess panpipes were original at the time, who knows? So, uh, we've given our opinions on all five films. As always, we'll spin round and see what we would have picked if we were the voters. I will be selfish and go first this time. Mississippi Burnham for me. I, I did go into watching these five thinking that that would be the case, and that was the case. For me, comfortably the best of these five. Uh, Mason, what do you reckon? For me, it's a toss-up between Mississippi Burning and... 
Dangerous Liaisons, which I think is a cracking period drama with some good performances, but I'm going to uh, stick with you and I'm also going to go for Mississippi Burning. Yeah, so, so Mississippi Burning for me was, is streets ahead um, of the other films here. It's you know, comfortably the best film. Clean sweep for Alan Parker there. The Academy did not agree. Um, Rainman obviously being the, the winner on this occasion. So that takes us towards the end of episode six of Revisiting the Oscars. Um, so thank you everyone for listening and for being with us this far. Next time we will be going to another year. And Bingham, I believe you are picking it this time. So do you want to tell us what year we're going to be watching and talk us through the films? Yeah. So so I was thinking about this and I thought, how do you pick a year? Do you, you know, to print out the list and just throw a dart at it, figure out what year you get? And that's not what I did because... Um, I didn't want all the holes in my wall. But I decided that I would go with something that was relatively recent as well as something which has big Clint Eastwood because we've not come across him yet and I'm sure he features heavily in the Oscars over the years. So I went for 2005. So if I'd run down the films that we've got, the first one is Sideways, which is another road trip film, which I know we've just had Rain Man, but it's a bit of a different affair with, from what I can remember, two guys in South Africa drinking wine. The next one is Ray, which is the Ray Charles biopic that I think most of Jamie Foxx, I think, was the actor in it. Yeah. We also have Finding Neverland, which I don't think I've ever seen, but I suspect has uh, something to do with uh, Peter Pan. Uh, well, I suspect it, it, it does have something to do with Peter Pan. We then have The Aviator, which uh, I'm looking very much looking forward to watching that absolute epic again with Leonardo DiCaprio. And we also have Million Dollar Baby, which is the reason that I picked, because we have a Clint Eastwood produced film. Excellent. I've actually only seen two of these films, which I think for post-2000s must be about as low as it comes for amount that I've watched. I've only seen Sideways and Million Dollar Baby. Um, enjoyed both before, so happy to revisit them. And the other three films, it'd uh, be good to, good to watch them for the first time. Uh, I agree. Sorry, the, the delay there wasn't because I was so shocked at this year. It was merely because I was because I was muted. But yeah, this is, I think, so it's the 2005 Oscars, but the year we're talking about is 2004, the year I started uni. I've probably seen these films after going for a night out in the lounge. I'll have had my magnetic earrings in. I'm looking forward to re- revisiting this year. Yeah, it sounds good. So we will be back with this episode in round about a month's time, depending on how quickly we get around to watching these films. So all that's left then is just to say thanks for listening and uh, we'll speak to everyone soon. So thank you. Bye. Cheers, Mike. Cheers. But if they follow